Hi there, Glocal Citizens. It's Florence Adu, your host for the podcast that inspires a borderless mindset around doing something in the world. This week, we're coming to you from Brooklyn, New York, and London in the United Kingdom. And my guest is another dynamic diasporan with wonderful international experience. Her name is Tara Sabri Collier. She is an early stage impact investor and a visiting fellow at Oxford University, where she focuses on diversity equity, inclusion, and impact investing. And she has a wonderful CV that talks a lot more about the country she's lived in, the continent she's lived on, and her passion for inclusive economic development, especially for Afro-descendant and Indigenous communities and women and girls. So this is promising to be another wonderful conversation. And without any further delay, I introduce Miss Tara Sabri Collier. Hi, Tara. Tell us more about you and where you're local and what inspires you. I'm currently a local in London, England, although I would say the other homes that are close to my heart are U.S., which is where I'm from, India, where I also own a home, and Brazil, which is where I spend a lot of my adult life. What inspires me is our possibilities to create a dramatically more ecologically sustainable and equitable world where we all have opportunities to thrive, especially as a woman of African and and indigenous descent coming from communities that have not had uh, optimal opportunities to thrive, at least in my homeland in the U.S., being part of a force for ensuring that brilliance Afro-descendant and indigenous people are given opportunities to grow businesses that can give back to our communities, that can serve the planet, that can help intergenerational wealth creation is something that has me excited to wake up every day. Wonderful. So when you wake up every day, tell us more about your craft. Like what exactly and how do you exactly implement on that inspiration? I work across a few fronts. I work full-time for an impact investment fund that invests in Africa and Asia, well, specifically Africa and India, having been brought up by a very Afrocentric, Pan-Africanist dad. It was always my dream to be able to have one foot on the continent and give back, contribute my skills and capabilities to the continent. So in my day job, I spend a lot of time on that. I focus a lot on off-grid energy companies, especially in Nigeria and Ethiopia, And I focus a lot on how we can deploy capital that can create innovative businesses that'll solve the biggest challenges for energy access and agriculture. That's what I spend a lot of time on. I also spend significant amount of time working with Oxford University as a visiting fellow. I lecture on topics of impact investment, equity, diversity, inclusion, and I also mentor on campus startups. And additionally, I also am an independent early stage impact investor. So when I'm not wearing my other two hats, I'm looking at startups and building bridges with other investors that care about backing underrepresented founders, especially in the U.S. and the U.K. Wow, that's so impressive, Tara. So I want to take a step back and ask a little bit more for our listeners that may not be so abreast of the details of the energy sector. What is off-grid energy? 
It's everything that's outside of the grid connections that typically state-owned enterprises would provide in much of the emerging markets and some of the developed markets. In some emerging markets, those are still using coal, but increasingly in the West, they've been switching towards renewable sources. However, there's about 800 million people that still don't have access to energy because those grids often inefficient or just not fully deployed in the global South, especially in Africa. So off-grid energy can mean mini grids, which often using either biogas or solar. It can mean solar home systems and solar panels. It can mean battery packs. It can mean other kinds of biogas, but it's usually renewable energy that's not linked to a central grid provided by the government. Would you call those, solving for those, some of the biggest challenges? And other than that, what are the biggest challenges? You know, we know, I understand that every place is not served, but what exactly are the biggest challenges that these underserved communities face? It's certainly debatable and country specific. Mm -hmm. I think the UN Sustainable Development Goals provide a high level framework that most people who care about impact and want to, are concerned with legacies and big challenges, they narrowed the global challenges down into 17 main action areas. But for some people, it's going to be education. For some people, it's health. For some people, it's climate change. None of these are wrong as long as we're all working to tackle some of the things that have the biggest impact on human quality of life and well-being. Mm -hmm. So I definitely see access to energy as one of those challenges, but health and education are also right up there for me. Mm -hmm. Got it. So... Thinking about how you came to be living, working, and playing where you are, why London? Why the where? Why are you where you are now? Well, actually, it was never my plan to live in London, although it has grown on me. I actually was based in Brazil when I decided to apply for an MBA. Oxford was my top choice for the MBA because they have a really big focus on social entrepreneurship and impact investing. I did my MBA at Oxford and That's where I met my husband. (laughs) And then after finishing the MBA and moving to South Africa and then Dubai, when we got married, made the most logical sense for me to relocate here to London because London is one of the biggest hubs for impact investment, definitely more so than Dubai. Mm -hmm. And so I've been here for three years now. Okay. All right. So how did you find yourself in Brazil? Why have you spent so much time there? I think I was spiritually drawn there. Mm. There was just a connection. Mm-hmm. I just felt an, an attraction to the culture. Mm-hmm. At Spelman, uh, where I did my undergrad, Spelman College, U.S.'s greatest uh, historically Black college, <laughs> uh, with no bias. No Spelman. <laughs> <laughs> There's a really big focus on the African diaspora in the world. And we actually have to take a year-long class on the African diaspora in the world, which is where I learned that Brazil has the biggest Black or Afro-descendant population in the hemisphere. It's about 50% of the population. So as someone who's interested in understanding African heritage from a more holistic perspective, a lot of things we had to forgo. Our ancestors had to forgo a lot of things as African-Americans over several generations. So understanding the rest of the African diaspora in the Western hemisphere, I think can be really revelatory as far as understanding like patrimonies and feeling a sense of connectedness to this broader community across the hemisphere that all went through the same thing, Mm -hmm. the middle passage and then enslavement and then overcoming enslavement and fighting for civil rights and having miscegenation and creating whole new cultures, whole new cuisines, whole new types of music that have been enormously influential in the hemisphere and in the world. Mm -hmm. Uh, So 
I think the U.S., Brazil, Cuba, and Jamaica are among the countries in the Western Hemisphere that have had enormous influence from an African diaspora perspective. And with Brazil being the biggest, I felt an attraction to go there and learn more. Mm -hmm. I also thought that for working in international economic development, if I could speak all of the languages of the African diaspora, that would be a huge asset. So I decided that I would try and learn Portuguese, French, Spanish, and Arabic. Mm. Didn't realize that also I would need to learn Swahili. Mm -hmm. But luckily, my parents were teaching me a little bit of it because we practiced Kwanzaa. Mm -hmm. Nevertheless, that was part of the attraction to Brazil. So I went there with a local NGO right after undergrad. I was working on entrepreneurship training. And then once I mastered Portuguese, I kept being called back to do different consulting projects because there's not that many international development professionals who are fluent in Portuguese. Mm -hmm. The World Bank sent me back there to do research after I'd been working for the World Bank in Washington, D.C. And when there, I actually ended up contracting for another NGO that was doing Afro-Brazilian local economic development. And there I came to this realization that it's a bit silly for me as an economic development professional to be pushing entrepreneurship in the global south and telling people to be entrepreneurs and giving entrepreneurship advice if I've never actually been an entrepreneur. So Mm. I decided to launch my first business in Brazil with two Afro-Brazilian consultants who I was collaborating with down there anyway. And that was my very first company that I started in my late 20s. And I ended up being there for three years running that company. We trained over 2,000 entrepreneurs across Brazil, Angola, Mozambique, Peru, and the U.S. But then in training all of those entrepreneurs, the access to capital kept coming up as their biggest challenge, which is what spurred me to go and do an MBA, which, as I mentioned to you, I did at Oxford. And I thought after the MBA, I would come back to Brazil, but I ended up having an opportunity to work for an impact investment fund in Africa. And that's why I haven't made it back yet, but I hope that I'll have opportunities. I believe I will create opportunities, I should say, uh, to continue being involved in the Brazilian growth story, especially the Afro-Brazilian and indigenous Brazilian growth story. Sure. So while you're living there, you know, we hear a lot about race challenges in Brazil. And I think, well, some of us, I think there's a lot of misconceptions about what South America is like in many circles and really understanding the challenges that Afro-Brazilians and I guess Anglo-Brazilians face in terms of accessing resources, services, things like that. So comparing the Brazilian experience to the American experience, how did you see the dynamics of race influencing everyday life? Well, it's interesting because the U.S. is one of the only countries that historically had the one-drop rule. Mm. And I think that actually ended up being an asset and a boon. So typically, when you look at things like access to land, access to capital, mm-hmm. if you had a white father or a white parent, well, you would usually be a father. They were the main ones that had other children mm-hmm. and would still be accepted by society. You would get access to capital land. Maybe you'd get freedom. You'd get a bunch of benefits that would give you economic leg up relative to other Black people. And because we had the one drop rule, whether you had those or not, you were still considered Black. So that meant that we developed a Black middle class earlier. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that the Black middle class in the U.S. was only created by people that uh, were of mixed European heritage. 
I'm just saying that like the black community became more diverse and was very inclusive of people with different socioeconomic levels of access. Whereas in the Brazilian context, they didn't have a one drop rule. So you did have more people that would marry white and their kids would be quote unquote mulatto. And those kids might have greater access to education and then they would marry white again. And so I'm not saying that's the only reason. There are several other reasons. In general, Brazil has a lower level of education than the U.S. Mm -hmm. It never had affirmative action in the 70s. Mm. But for various reasons, Brazil didn't really get a black middle class as early as the U.S. did. Mm. And that's a big difference. And especially when you consider that the African-American population is 13% of the population. We've already had a Black president. We've had Black senators and judges for a really long time. We've had Black doctors and dentists for a really long time, whereas Afro-Brazilians are about 50% of the population. And I mean, 15 years ago, when I first started working in Brazil, if you saw a bank manager who was Black, well, I never saw a bank manager who was black or a lawyer who was black or anything like that when I first started working in Brazil 15 years ago. Now you see those things, but the black middle class is much smaller and has taken much longer to develop as a percentage of the population because Afro-Brazilians are actually the majority of the population. So it's a much bigger disparity. It's a much bigger disparity that has much bigger economic impact. Because Afro-Brazilians are about half the population. Interesting. Wow. Interesting. So what tools, so I guess your work is part of the basket of tools that are available for that upward mobility in Brazil and probably other South American countries that have similar racial dynamics. I hope so. Yeah. I mean, I think depending on governments to address inequality is short-sighted. It really needs to be a cross-sector initiative. Mm. And I really believe in entrepreneurship and access to capital and business and wealth generation as being critical to economic equity, which then turns into social and political equity and starts to really move the gap in terms of quality of life Mm -hmm. and influence in society. That's my personal view. Mm -hmm. So we now are mostly investing in US and UK and the foundation or the impact investment fund I worked for invest in Africa and India, but I hope in the future to be able to do impact investments into Afro-Brazilian startups, because that would be a great way to come full circle and contribute to the revolution that's going on in Brazil as far as the broad-based economic empowerment of Afro-Brazilians that's starting to occur. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Got it. So I want to put a pin on that point because I want to come back to how you determine the types of businesses that you're investing in. But before that, speaking of living in Brazil or even living in Dubai or South Africa, this is my local speak segment where I ask my guests to share a word or phrase or saying that is a meaningful part of your local experience and why or how you came to value it as local speak. Does it have to be for England or can it be for anywhere? It can be for anywhere because you've been local in many places. Yeah. Something that's meaningful as any part of your global living experiences. Oh, it's one that I'm sure that you've heard that they always say in Africa, Uh (laughs) Noah Hala. Oh, Noah Hala. Yes. (laughs) Especially trying to do business. When I first started going to Africa and working in Africa, I was running my own business. Uh 
And then later I worked for a fund in Africa and in certain countries, things can be disorganized and take longer and you're waiting for people to get back to you and there's different issues. And someone says to you, no ahala, it's kind of like no BS, no runaround. We're going to get this done. Mm-hmm. Something that's always good to hear. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's funny, another of my guests, that was their local speak as well. And so we tracked down the origins, which is Hausa. It's The roots are in the Hausa language. So yeah, that's exactly what it means. It's like no mess, no nothing, just no, no nothing, but just let's keep it moving. <laughs> okay, nice. Thanks for that. So now going back to impact investing. So I have two topics that I want to explore further with you. One is some of the criteria that you use in terms of, so you're investing in these companies. We're curious about the sizes of companies and we know the sectors you focus on, but but what's the process for someone to access investors and investment capital from someone like you? For now, I'm in a variety of different angel networks and linked to a bunch of different incubators and they're all sharing startups with me. Shortly, we'll be launching our website for Eleanor Ventures, and that way we'll be accepting startup decks and company information right through the company's website. But for now, I'm also available on LinkedIn. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm definitely always excited to hear from high-impact revenue-generating companies. If Mm -hmm. they're not already revenue-generating, it's too early for me to look at, Mm -hmm. Uh, but definitely high-impact Revenue generating companies, if they're linked to the UN Sustainable Development Goals, that's amazing and even better. And then I'm also circulating relevant deals to other angels, especially when they meet those criteria. Mm -hmm. So when you say high impact, how are you defining that? It's funny because traditionally, impact investors, many impact investors do like to align with the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, Mm -hmm. myself included. And these goals cut across health, education, women's empowerment, land, climate change, across 17 action areas, as I mentioned. However, I recognize that there are certain global problems that don't always neatly fit into these boxes or that are seen as maybe not as acute because they're in the global north, but they still really make a big difference to people's quality of life. So two examples that I've mentioned to quite a few people here in the UK, uh, one of my favorite apps is Babylon GP at Hand, which is telemedicine app that's coordinated with the National Health Service, as well as Bubble, which is a babysitting app. It's like Uber for babysitters. Mm. As a working mother, I know that Bubble is a lifesaver. Babylon is a lifesaver in this age when working mothers are juggling so much, especially in places where they have to teach kids, homeschool kids, and work full-time jobs or run businesses. Mm-hmm. The impact on people's quality of life, the time-saving impact, which then translates into, obviously, that can be monetized as a monetary value. This is massive impact that probably is also contributing to better gender equality and better health outcomes. But you mm-hmm. wouldn't see these companies necessarily saying that they're social enterprises. And so that's why, although, yes, I would prioritize companies that are aligned with the UN Sustainable Development Goals, I'm open to other types of ways of changing lives and changing the world. Mm -hmm. I hope that's uh, clear as far as my definition of high impact. Sure, sure, sure. It makes a lot of sense. So you bring up something that's very key in understanding some of this space. And you, as a mother and as a woman, 
Do you see many women taking that perspective or many women in your space being impact investors? Interestingly enough, Diversity Forum here in the UK did uh, some preliminary analysis of women in impact investing. Mm-hmm. We're extremely well represented in the lower ranks. I mean, we're arriving at gender parity, not as well represented in boards or in directorships mm. or in investment <clears throat> committees. But mm-hmm. when I look around with the number of women who are in finance, and when I look around at the increasing number of women in investment committees that I see, women raising funds, I think we're on track to reach gender parity and impact investing in my lifetime. Where we're not on track is racial equity and representation and impact investing. I mean, here in the UK, preliminary analysis shows that women of color are less than 3% of directors and UK impact investment funds. And if you disaggregate for Black women, I'm sure it'd be closer to the order of 1%. Right. Um, so considering the fact that a lot of impact investment does go into either countries that are Black and brown, so Africa, Asia, Latin America, sometimes the Middle East, mm-hmm. and within the West, it goes into communities of color, largely, uh, potentially even majority there really is a need for there to be racial equity within investment committees. And I think that's actually the biggest hurdle that the sector currently needs to address. Mm -hmm. So do you find that your work with the university is moving it in that direction or are there other tools or platforms that will start to balance in another way? Well, there's a few resources in regards to that. Mm -hmm. Yes. Within with Oxford university, I, taught a gender finance class last year. Mm -hmm. And this year I'll be teaching impact investing for equality, which will have modules on gender lens investing and impact investing for racial equality. Mm -hmm. Uh, The taxonomy, pedagogy, methodology, metrics and frameworks for racial equity investing have not really been developed yet. That's happened for gender lens investing over the past decade. But for impact investing for racial equity, all of that has really started to take off now due to the Black Lives Matter movement and the uprisings in response to the killing of George Floyd. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we would expect to start to see some of those in the coming year. There's a few inklings which are really promising, one of which is the diversity standard, which is actually for VC, but many impact investors will probably take it on in the uh, absence of a specific impact investment framework. So the diversity standard from diversity VC here in the UK outlines basically parameters, DD, terms, commitments that you can require of your investees to help make them more racially equitable. Mm -hmm. It gives a framework basically for VC investment to be more racially equitable and and gender equitable. Mm -hmm. There's now indices that are being created. One is the racial equity index and the other is the index for racial equity. Uh, One of them is for social finance and the other is for international development. Obviously, impact investing kind of overlaps with both of those. But these indices will come out and they'll basically be ranking organizations in this space on their gender and racial equity, which will range from internal metrics to external metrics. These indices are still in development, so I don't have much more information, but I think it's going to be tremendously helpful to have the transparency, which will then create the accountability Mm -hmm. uh, among impact investors, because it's a bit 
laughable and potentially even hypocritical to make commitments to Africa and Africans, to make commitments to underprivileged communities here in the West, which are primarily Black or Indigenous or people of color, and then have no one on the investment committee representing them as stakeholders. Mm -hmm. Um, And so this transparency that will come from the indices will help to at least have visibility and potentially even help to ensure that happens. Right. So who's leading the charge on a lot of those indices and in that space? Are there professional groups that you work with or are that part of the governing bodies besides the UN? Because, you know, they've set that, they send the benchmarks or general floor for what needs to happen. Who else are the major players in moving the dial? Interestingly, both of these indices are newly created independent agencies. I have not seen any of these large multilaterals, multinationals, major international NGOs come up with or create any kind of guiding framework for the whole ecosystem to adhere to. Mm. And that's a really interesting question of why they haven't. I suspect that for many of them, they don't want to come out with something until they've done it internally, tested it, see positive results that they would be willing to share and then come out with it. I suspect that's the reason why. Mm-hmm. But nevertheless, having a third party that's going to be tracking this and making it publicly available mm-hmm. is powerful and could really shift the dynamics. You know what they say, what's done in the dark will eventually come to light. Right. And I think shining a light on representation within the institutions that have made such big commitments to Africa, to the global south, to communities of color, and how they actually have representation and equity internally and the way and in their operations. Mm -hmm. will be really powerful to ensuring that those commitments are adequately fulfilled. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Got it. So another question about how getting to the point of being eligible for this impact investment. So most of the businesses are really micro businesses. You have so many micro businesses in Africa, in the global South. Where are you seeing the tipping point? What are the kind of key factors that get them from revenue positive and job creation? What are some of those smaller issues? Who are some of the intermediaries that you see? Like where can people focus their attention to bringing companies along to get to the point where they can grow with the support of your type of facilitation? Well, the micro enterprises are supported by microfinance institutions. Mm -hmm. And there's already data showing that a lot of them, probably even the majority, don't really reach a massive level of job creation. Right. A lot of them still, at best, they become mom and pop shops. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them only generate jobs for their owners mm-hmm. uh, or at best their owners' families. Mm. There's a difference between that and the kinds of ventures that most impact investors are looking to support. Mm-hmm. Now, while microfinance can be considered an impact investment, uh, most impact investment funds outside of microfinance are looking for highly scalable companies, especially considering the fact that a lot of impact investment is in the form of equity. And when you're doing equity, you have to see an exit, which means you have to see scale. Right. The impact investment that's done in the form of debt, you have to remember, especially for Africa, that the rates are going to be based on local central bank rates and market risk premiums, which means that for many countries, it can be a quite high interest rate, mm-hmm. which means that the company has to be already a place of size and stability of revenues where it can handle that. Mm-hmm. So as far as what companies should be thinking about, it really depends on whether or not they're going for equity or debt. 
Mm-hmm. Obviously, if they're going for debt, then it's a question of the capital ratios that they can afford. Mm-hmm. If it's a question of equity, it's can you grow at the rate that an equity investor would need you to grow at? And can you show a viable exit opportunity for him? So right. those are the two questions that I would look at depending on which kind of impact capital I wanted to raise, whether it's that's in the U.S. or Africa, anywhere. Mm-hmm. Right. Understood. Interesting. I love this space. Like, it's just so interesting to look at the nitty gritty of the finance that is ultimately the factory that will grow Africa in particular. I'm very focused on Africa, but also, again, for Afro-descendant communities across the globe. So I want to transition a little bit and get into my mindset hack question. And this is where I ask, what is your favorite or an innovative mindset hack? And it's one that you can imagine or one that you know of. Oh, I have one. I don't always remember to do it, but when I do do it, it's very powerful. A lot of times we can play into scripts in our head of who we are and the different obstacles that we face, especially as someone of a minority background or as a woman. It's easy to (laughs) feel like you're going to have certain people having a stigma about you and you really can't let that stop you. And yet you can have all that running in your subconscious in the background, which can disempower you unless you are actively taking steps to empower yourself psychologically, hence why this mindset hack is so important. So especially if I have like a really big Mm -hmm. meeting coming up or I need to (laughs) convince someone, what I like to do is I like to like when I'm in the Uber or taxi on my way wherever I'm going, I like to imagine the movie of whatever the meeting or whatever the issue is that I'm on route to attack or resolve. And I like to imagine as a movie and then imagine myself as a character in that movie. Okay, what kind of character do I want to show up? Do I want to show up as like Olivia Pope in Scandal? Do I want to be more like a Kamala Harris type? Do I want to be more like a Wonder Woman type? And I actually imagine myself as that character and how they would do it. And then I think of it like as an avatar. So we can easily drop back into our typical ways of doing things and ways of seeing ourselves. But just before going into that scenario, I like to imagine myself as that avatar, whoever I'm using as my avatar and the way they show up in the world. So I can show up in that way too. I hope that makes sense. Does that make sense? Yes, that's a great one. That's really great. It takes like the idea of visualization to an accessible space because people, I think, have a hard time with visualization sometimes, but that you said, you imagine yourself as a movie or in a movie or it is a movie and you're a character. I think that's very accessible to anyone to decide, okay, in this movie, this is going to happen and this is how everything plays out. That's great. Hello, reminder, do it all the time. If you haven't been doing it, you should definitely keep doing it. That sounds like a great one. Yeah. So how, if you're a shy uh, person and you imagine yourself showing up as like, I don't know, Oprah or Barbara mm -hmm. Barbara Walters, like they're not shy. They're just going to show up and start the conversation and then pretend you're them. You won't be shy in that moment. (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah. That's a great one. That's definitely one. And just a reminder, listeners, remember, we always have really good show notes. So- A lot of the concepts that Tara's described and spoken about we'll definitely be putting into the show notes so you can refer back to them and you can find out where you can reach Tara in all of her many roles, (laughs) which are great roles. So I have a, a question about your 
just in terms of what you believe has prepared you to be successful in taking on the roles that you've taken on and in transitioning from one phase to the next in your life? The question is, what has prepared me? Yes. What do you think has prepared you to make those different transitions and to be successful? I think education has been massive. So Spelman College, they really emphasize service leadership and they teach you a lot about the African diaspora. I mean, in Oxford, I gained a lot of business skills, everything from financial modeling to human-centered design. And then there's the extracurricular or co-curricular, some of which has been mindset work. So I would say um, Landmark, I found really useful as far as building a more empowering uh, self-dialogue. And then Mm. I've also had life coaching to continue to help me pushing against my own barriers. Mm. So I really like the idea of a coach. So that's something that I think many people can take away a lot from and even going about finding someone to be that and take on that role. So for young professionals, I think it's a great way to move yourself from one level to the next level. And if there's any resources that we can garner, we'll definitely put those also in the show notes. So I think we're getting to the end of our conversation. You're a busy mom and let's get back to back to life and family. But before you go, I want to ask you a question about some of the information that you consume. So what are you listening to now? What kind of things are you listening to? I'm mostly listening to Indian ragas in the morning for a really chill low-key starts my day, or Hadiya Barbell's amazing SoundCloud playlists, which are full of chill, but kind of inspiring spiritual songs. And I'm also listening to Myra Andrade, who's an amazing singer from Cape Bird. Nice. So that's, again, show notes, so notable. So all very interesting international, global sounds. And so that, again, will be in the show notes. So Tara, any last words for our listeners before we sign off? Even though it may not seem like it right now, our global world is becoming increasingly more connected and we cannot get past our interdependency on each other, which I believe creates massive opportunities for us to create economic and social impact, empower ourselves and empower others. So I encourage everyone to keep thinking of ways to do so. An important part of doing so is having this local, empathetic, compassionate mindset and a solutions-oriented mindset. So I encourage everyone to continue developing that. And I think this show is also part of developing that mindset. Thank you. And on that, Global Citizens, we thank you, Tara. Thank you for taking time out to speak with us and talk more about impact investing and global inclusion and all the wonderful things you're working on. We'll be looking out for information about your company as well as your ongoing works. Local citizens, thanks for joining us again for another episode of the podcast. You can always find us at www.glocalcitizenspod.com. You can catch us on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts. We are now on Amazon Podcasts as well and pretty much everywhere you find podcasts. We're live every Tuesday with a new episode. And as always, until next time, bye for now.